Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about educational technology, learning sciences, and instructional design. Today we're talking about assessments. But first, I'd like to introduce you to my guest for this episode. Please tell us a little bit about yourselves. I'm Brianna Waksberger. Um, I'm a fifth-year grad student in the STEP program. I'm an aspiring math teacher, and I think that's it. We have a lot of math teachers this semester. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and Kelly, you were on the podcast a few weeks ago when we talked about universal design. Do you want to add anything to your introduction? Um, not really. Can I ask um, Brianna a question? Of course. Brianna, what do you love most about math? Um, I like how it's very structured. Like, I feel like um, I was never a fan of, like, reading or, like, I don't know. I just didn't like at the analyzation of it. I feel like math is just, like, numbers and... I just always was good at it. I liked it from high school. It's more logical, less interpretive? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. I'm not an English person at all. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither, honestly. <laughs> so before we talk about assessments, I want to start with a question that provides a segue from last week's hands-on assignment and the future school that you wrote about earlier and see if we can make a connection. As more teachers use technology that provide them with ready-made templates, lessons, and units, do you think that the profession in general will evolve and become less focused and dependent on, to use the TPAC framework we read about, content or pedagogical knowledge? In other words, if increasingly more effort is made into developing lessons that anyone can just pick up and choose and drop into their classes, that I can imagine a future where we don't really need teacher education. It will become like working in an assembly line where the profession gets reduced to something simple. So for example, how to use the technology in a basic way. Teachers will just need technology knowledge because the other stuff will be taken over by the technology or by the people who design the content. I'm not asking this out of paranoia. This is just based on an understanding of how jobs have changed over time. Oftentimes, jobs that used to be very personal are broken down into smaller parts with the more technical aspects taken over by automation or by unskilled labor. So for example, chances are the shoes you're wearing are not made by hand anymore. I don't think we're there yet, but sometimes I feel like we're stepping on that path. When I see teachers talk about how great an application is that lets you pick and choose topics that are already aligned to standards, I see that as a possible future. What do you think of that? I think it's applicable in many other professions, like McDonald's workers are being replaced with machines that take orders. But although the technology, I think it's great, it's great we're implementing it and giving people those choices, I don't really, I think there's a very human side of teaching that is very much required that the technology cannot simulate. It needs a very human side of it, and so when I say human side, you need that love, you need that care, and you need that support for the emotional and social aspect of learning to help grow in your learning. So in my version of this future school, there will still be people in the classroom. So it's not that automation or robots have taken over the classroom, just that the person inside the classroom is no longer seen as a profession and more, as you said, like an, a fast food worker in that the fast food worker is not a trained chef. He or she is just trained to do some very basic things. And so the person in the classroom will just need basic technology knowledge, like know how to turn on the computer, know how to pick a lesson or pick a unit, and that's it. And as I see these applications, they're doing these amazing things. It does make me wonder down the road, 
because I know that a lot of people are designing applications that are able to help teachers make a lot of decisions. And I wonder down the road, what would be the logical outcome of this trend? So if you put it that way, I still think we still would need that training to understand how to assess the students. Because if you don't have the pedagogical background knowledge, how can you really assess the students, even though they're using the technology? Even though it is meeting a standard, you have to understand what that standard is, have some sort of training and understanding, even like what technology you're going to use. Um, I also feel like you can have a person in the room, an untrained person in the room, put on that you know lesson for the class. But who's monitoring the students' progress? Who's helping each student that is struggling? Because you know I've watched videos before on things and that I want to learn, and I might not necessarily get it the first time, and I might need I might need to watch it a million more times or have someone else explain it to me. I actually wrote this in the, in the future school paper. I wrote about how I think that eventually that technology will replace teachers, but I also think that there's another side to it where teachers need to be monitoring progress and and helping students to further their knowledge. You know, you can't just really look at a screen and listen to someone else talk about something and immediately understand it. I think there needs to be someone who is trained, like Kelly said, to assess the students in some aspect. Well, I hope that's what happened. Me too. Otherwise, I went to school for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even if it happens the way I described it, I don't think that would mean that people will be out of jobs, just that the job would change into something else. And the more professional job would be in those who design these applications. Right. I mean, I've been thinking about this question for a long time, and it arises out of seeing what technology can do, especially in the classroom, when I see applications that allow teachers to pick units, topics, standards that they want to do, and the application provides them with a lesson. I see that as technology gradually eroding the teacher's agency. Not completely, not yet, but a little at a time. And just looking down the road, I wonder what the logical outcome of this would be, maybe not next year, maybe not in five years, but down the road. If the teacher mostly just drags a video from YouTube, drags a lesson from Khan Academy, maybe having an application make a lot of the other decisions, then the teacher's decision-making ability is being gradually taken away. And that's just something that I think about a lot. Yes, I understand. I think I've mentioned before, I'm, I'm a very entertaining type teacher. <laughs> and it keeps, it keeps the engagement. It keeps the human side. It keeps that connection. Because learning is more than content. It's also social and emotional. And life skills, as we also read frequently, and part of gaining that life skills are interacting with other people with their different personalities. I agree with that. I also think about, too, I wrote this in the future school, I wonder... If, you know, technology does end up taking over and end up, you know, being the main focus of a classroom, I wonder where students' social skills will be, you know. Often, we we also discussed how, you know, things might just end up being completely online where kids don't even need to go to school anymore. And I wonder where their social skills will lie at that point because this generation is so, you know, full of technology and I feel like they don't have the best social skills and they don't always know how to like talk to people and stuff and I feel like that's only going to get worse as especially if we're incorporating technology into a place that they're not supposed to be using as much technology like their phones and stuff so I do wonder where their social skills will lie at the end when we have all this technology if technology is the main focus of a classroom and social skills are so important because we're social creatures by nature I'm always a bit skeptical when the loss of social interaction is the only reason people try to resist the technology. Because social interaction is this thing that always carries with it a sense of nostalgia. 
that when people are questioning a new technology, they always mention social skills or social interaction. This has happened since, really, since the beginning when writing was invented. But more recently, when books became popular, people thought that reading would erode social interaction because when you're reading a book, you're not talking to someone, and they thought that telephones would erode social interaction because people are not going to be visiting other people in their houses anymore when they can just talk to others in the phone. So this is always brought up, and it continues to be brought up. And you can pretty much apply it to a lot of things, and it probably has some impact on social interaction or social skills on in some way. And it never pans out because obviously we still talk. We haven't stopped talking since people were able to write down things, or when people have been communicating long distances. So my thinking in saying that is that with the with all these advancements in technology, eventually school it sounds like school could be online at some point where students can teach themselves things and like. When I went to school, you know, that was where I made my friendships. That was where I um, have the people that I'm still friends with today and I hang out with today. So, like, my wonder is if they're going, if they're not even going to school anymore and they're doing, they could do it all at home, where are they meeting friends? Where are they meeting people? You know, if, I, I wonder that aspect. Where, when are they going outside? When are they developing in the world around them instead of just sitting in their house, you know, learning new material? That's a concern, I feel like. Well, Kelly, in your future school, you talked about flexibility being a big part of it, and students are able to learn anytime they want. So, presumably, if they are not in the classroom and maybe are taking courses online, they can spend the time they would be spending in class to socialize and meet other people. I mean, cl- the classroom is not the only place you can meet people, right? Well, I tried to make it a point when I made the future school that yes, I do think it's going to be flexible online, but there's going to be prompts to be social and work together, just in a different way. Like how right now we're collaborating and we're all online and we're talking. There will still be those prompts to be social. The good news is that when people look into the future at future jobs, the K twelve teachers tend not to be the ones that are high on the obsolete list. Right, because those are like the basic skills that they need to learn. Yeah, it tends not to be on the list of jobs that's in any danger of being replaced by automation. And I hope that technology continues to improve in such a way where the decision-making power remains with the teachers instead of letting the technology make the choices for the teacher. Yes. Anyway, that ended up being a longer tangent than I anticipated. <laughs> let's, let's get to the readings. Kali, what did you think of the readings? So in the reading, it said that teachers are guilty of using one or, ty- or one or two types mm-hmm. of assessments or one or two assessments. So my question, it originally was, can a teacher use too many assessments? But upon reading your comment, I think it's also worth asking, can teachers also mm-hmm. use too many types of assessments? Can it get overwhelming? Could you be assessing things that don't necessarily need to be assessed? I think informal and formal assessments are important. I think that if you're assessing students, you know, to see maybe what kind of test takers they are, you know, I think a lot of formal assessments maybe in the beginning just to see if they're, if maybe they're not good test takers, if maybe they need to be tested for, you know, disabilities or things like that. But I think that a lot of informal assessment is good just like throughout a lesson, just to see where students lie in your lesson. And, you know, you can kind of take that information and gauge that for the next lesson you teach. So I think that if it's for the right reason, I don't think you can be too, um, use too many assessments. But I think that if you're not testing the right things or for the right reasons, it can be bad. I think both type and number of assessments are both important. 
it just depends on what you're teaching and how long the unit is. If you think of a class, if you think of it as research and the assessment is a research tool, the more data points you have, the more precise you're going to get to what you're measuring. So any given assessment, just as any given data collection instrument, are not perfectly precise. They set out to measure one thing, but if you try to use it to measure something else that's not intended to, then you might not get a precise reading. And assessments are not precise. They give you a general idea of how a student is doing or how a class is doing. And even if you have a variety of assessment tools, that's still an approximation. You do get more and more precise if it's well-designed, but it's not a perfect reflection. There are a lot of variables that could come into play. It helps with that scrapbook, like they mentioned Right, a scrapbook instead of a snapshot. Mm -hmm. I think figure 7.4 on page 152, where they show the continuum of assessments, that looks like a good guide to use to make sure that all your units have a good variety of assessments that fall along the continuum and that it's not just one or two types, but a variety from those. I think definitely the informal checks for understanding are important too. I mentioned that when you're teaching a lesson, it's important to informally, you know, assess your students to see if they're understanding what you're saying to them. And I definitely think that even quizzes and tests are important too, just to see where students are at and if you can move on to the next unit. But I also do believe that these tests show, you know, what students need extra help or what students might not, may need to be tested for a disability because they might not be good at taking tests or they might need extra time on a test. I feel like without a lot of assessment, we wouldn't be able to check if students need extra time on tests or have disabilities that we need to monitor and take care of. Looking at the continuum of assessments, the figure 7.4, when you reflect on either your own teaching or maybe a course you've taken, do you see assessments falling along that continuum? So for example, in this class, the informal checks would be probably the voice thread discussions and the aha moments. And then the observations and dialogues would I guess also be voice thread and this podcast would be another example of that. And then we have the tests and quizzes, which I don't use very often because I'm not a big fan of them, but you do have that ungraded quiz from a few weeks ago that does like a quick check of your knowledge. And then the academic prompts would be the writing that you do. And then the performance task would be your final project, the unit plan. So that would be how I would see the assessments for this class falling along the continuum. What about some of the courses that you're either you're teaching or you've taken? I was subbing for an AP class, and I noticed that they get assessed mainly on tests and quizzes and just little academic prompts, not so much variation, like performance tasks or dialogues. They mentioned they don't have discussions in class, and they say how much they like discussions. They just sit there and they take notes, do an assignment, take a test, do it all over again. I know in the class that I student taught in, um, in my, the middle school, I noticed that um, we did a lot of, I feel like, informal assessment. We were always, you know, ob in observations too, we were always walking around the room and seeing where students were at, kind of working with students individually when they were working on their assignments and their lesson, just like, you know, their practice problems by themselves. We actually use clickers too. I don't know if you guys have heard of those, where they were able to, like, put up an answer that they got, and I was able to walk around the room and see that everybody was understanding it, or if they weren't understanding it, maybe I needed to go over it again. 
I also often had students like go up to the board and like, like I had a pair of students go up to their board and like explain how they got to their answer and like talk about what they did so that like they were also hearing it from their peers. And sometimes it helps to just hear it from your peers. So I think that it's definitely, that's like a more, I feel like a performance test where, you know, students were able to explain their reasoning with their peers. So I think I definitely saw a lot of different types of assessments. Let's talk a little bit about rubrics. And Brianna, I think you had a question about this. I was wondering, you know, what are some ideas we can use for rubrics for math and science? Kelly, you said you're a bio- biology yes. teacher. So for math and science classes, you know, I feel like it's easier to make a rubric for an essay or it's easier to make a rubric for, you know, a specific something that you're looking for in a specific class. But I feel like with math and science, it's a little bit more difficult to gauge what we're looking for in some sense. Like, I feel like usually it's about the right answer or maybe not the whole process of it. And I feel like it's, it, I was wondering if we also think it's helpful when we give students these rubrics. I understand why you think it would be difficult to make rubrics for math and science because they can seem like rigid. But if you were to make a rubric for math, you could test, like, they might get an answer wrong, but did they do the process right? Are they thinking outside the box? Did they do another method like, you could see if they're thinking, if they're using the right method, or if they're, you know, being a little abstract. You know, you could make a rubric like that. And do I think it's help- helpful to give students a rubric? I'm going to say yes and no. It can be helpful because you have an idea. But there's been times I didn't really get a rubric in a class and I get excited because it just means I have more freedom. Like, you know, it depends what kind of student you are. Some students need to know what to do, how to do it, how am I going to get this A? When I don't get a rubric, it's like a hands free for all. I can be creative. I can add this as long as I'm, you know, following the assignment. I feel like I'm the type of person who needs a rubric. Um, I, I feel like it also kind of makes it easier for teachers as well to understand, you know, or kind of gauge how they're grading everybody and so that they're grading everybody uniformly. I like rubrics just because I like to see, you know, what my teacher is looking for and what they want from me. I, I do agree with you, though, that without a rubric, you're kind of um, led to be more creative and allowed to be more creative, which is nice. But I definitely think that I was a type of student that liked to see a rubric in front of me so that I knew that I was going, going to follow the right procedure. And yes, I agree with you also how that could be great to have a rubric for. When you said you like rubrics, are you speaking as a student or as a teacher? I was speaking as a student, but I also think it is um, helpful for a teacher too when grading. But I, as a student, I was always the type to want a rubric with me just to see what I needed. And I don't I always like when teachers are openly like, oh, do this, do whatever you want with this. Like, here's your assignment. And I'm not a math person, but I assume that there are still things like processes that are important that are not just simply right and wrong. And as Kelly said, that you want to make sure that students are understanding these processes so that, uh, and this was in the reading, I believe, where they said because it's possible for someone to get a correct answer for the wrong reasons or get the wrong answer for the right reasons. With my um, with my student teaching experience in the middle school, I noticed too that my teacher would often grade on their process instead of just the answer itself. Like if their answer was right based on their process, they she gave them partial credit because, you know, they they were doing the right process. I love it. So I think that's an awesome way to grade things. I love too. it because when I took physics, I got every answer wrong, but I did the process right, and that saved me, and I understood concepts. On page 156, the authors said that math and history, and to some extent science, assessments are often exercises and not problems. So as math and science teachers, do you agree with that observation? Yes, a lot of some lab work is an exercise, like sensor fusion, doing extractions. 
But let's say you're given a problem like, how do we get rid of this tumor cell? Although that's the problem. Although there's going to be exercises that you would have need to know to do to solve the problem, you still have that freedom of, oh, what am I going to, it's still a problem. You know, no exercise is going to tell you how to get rid of a cancer or a tumor cell. You have to do some testing and go through things that may deviate from a standard exercise. I feel as if um, you, I think you're given a problem and then you use exercises to solve that problem. Like I thought as soon as Kelly was talking about science, I was thinking um, the school that I'm with is doing a district-wide project about climate change and they're trying to figure out how can, as humans, can we reverse climate change or, you know, try to prolong the process. I think that is a problem, but the exercises that they're doing to solve this problem or look for ways to solve this problem, I think that's the exercise. The same thing with math. When we're given a problem, you're using a process of exercises to figure out that answer. You're exercising a process, I think. They do say that both exercises and problems are important, just that exercises alone are not enough for learning to occur. And the figure on page 157 that compares the differences between problems and exercises is really helpful if you need to distinguish between the two. So, for example, problems tend to be more noisy and complicated and requires you to figure out what you need to do, whereas the exercise is more cleaned up. So, this is related to what we read about last week on transfer. And the idea is that we want you want to make sure that you also pose problems that are less cleaned up than exercises so that they can be higher level on the transfer scale. We're going to have different exercises and know which one to apply for the problem. Because it also walks that fine line, I feel, of knowing a skill if I'm understanding correctly. To solve a math problem, you have to have a certain exercises or skills to do so, I feel. The authors also wrote about self-assessment. I was wondering what do you think about that as an activity? And self-assessment, I think it's good because as a student think about themselves, has them think about their own learning, as we also discussed in other readings. It's good to have that metacognition because it helps keep you alive and aware instead of just passively doing something. Um, I think that self-assessment also can be related back to the difference between an expert and a novice, too. I was thinking about this when I was reading it, actually. I think that experts often can self-assess. You know, they do think about their grades before, you know, they hand things in. They do think about where they're at or what they need extra help with, what they need to, you know, ask questions about. Um, I think that it is important to self-assess because if you're not gauging what you need help in and what you might be struggling in or what you're doing well in, you can't really monitor your own progress very well. And I think you need to be able to do that, and that's what makes an expert or, you know, a good learner. Do you do self-assessments in your own classes? When I sub, it's always different. So let's say if the teacher didn't leave me a plan, I do have them think about why I'm having them do this assignment, what they think of it, what they're going to write. And I do little prompts before. Let's say if I'm subbing for English, I use something from this class, actually, as a writing assignment, the difference between learning and knowing. So I put three bullet points to think about. Why is this important? Is there a difference? And why do you think you should you have to write about? Do you think this would be a struggle for you? You know, something of that nature. I feel like as a teacher, I also self-assess. I think that after every lesson, it's important to kind of assess what you did well and what you didn't do so well and, you know, how to, how to improve that for the next lesson. I did an um, exit ticket with my students and it says on the bottom, they did like a problem or an exercise and then on the bottom it says, 
I need more practice or I'm comfortable with this. I need more practice though. I am comfortable with this completely. I'm uncomfortable or I need to go to extra help or I'll be at extra help. So it was kind of a way to gauge where they're at and for them to realize on their own, okay, I need to do something about this. That's good. I like that. I've also seen people recommend having students answer how confident they were in a question that they just answered. So for example, if you had a quiz question, the follow-up question would be how confident were you that your response was correct? And I guess you rate it on a scale of one to five or something. And that information would also be useful for teachers to assess what the students are guessing and how sure they are in terms of their answer. And I think that's just another data point for teachers to have when they think of their teaching, which seems very useful. I agree with that, definitely. Do you think everything needs to be graded? And just speaking as students, do you think if I was to present you with something to do and tell you it's not graded, would you do it? And if you do it, would you put in the same effort? I would say it comes down to motivation. I mean, me and as a college student, even though it's not being graded, I'll be motivated to enhance my learning. But if you did this to me in high school and I knew it wasn't getting graded, most likely I wouldn't do it. And I also notice when I sub, I got to tell the kids, your teacher's going to grade it. Otherwise, they're not going to hand anything in and like they're not even going to do it. So it also comes down to a mentality. So maybe if you were to give an assignment that you didn't plan on grading to sort of prompt them or give them a little nudge to do it, I would say it's going to help in the future for when you do a graded assignment. I think for me personally, it depends on my time. Like I know that for me personally, like if something wasn't being graded, I would do it, but I don't think I would take as much time on it because I have like five million things going on right now especially working on the ITPA but for a student <laughs> I think that I would never just tell a student oh this isn't being graded do what you want with it like I would definitely tell them it's being graded no matter what because then that's what when they put in the most effort because they are so young you know they don't understand the importance of wanting to do well for you in general or like taking pride in what you're doing I think it's more they're more about my mom or dad could see this grade you know I don't want my grade to go down so often I know that like I'll always say like oh this is being graded if they ask and even if it's not I'll hand it back you know maybe with no grade or with a grade just to see how they did but I think it's important to grade everything yeah and sometimes the grade is what really matters to them in the end of the day it's the end result that's what's going to move you to the next level is that grade the reason I'm asking that question was that a few months back I was reading a book on discussions and I don't remember whether they were talking about discussions in general or just discussions in online classes but they recommend not having participation as something that's graded and I really struggled with that concept and that's kind of why I'm turning the question to you because I worry that if I made participation to be something that's not graded I think the students who are motivated will participate regardless but there might be a good number of students who won't, even though the discussion is really helpful or the participation is really helpful. And just like in this class, I have the power-ups and they're optional. The students who do them consistently are the ones who are on top of the class, and I'm not worried about them overall. And there may be another group who are doing fine and don't feel like they need the power-ups, which is also okay. 
But there might be students who really should do some of these things that are kind of not required, but they're there to help them, uh, like this podcast or like listening to the slides that I make it more optional. And I feel like putting a grade to it makes a difference. Yes, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, I'm on the fence, too, about grading participation, where some people can learn and not show up to class, but they're still learning. But then on the other hand, people like me, I need that participation because that's, you know, that's what my strong point is being involved. But then I hear what you're saying. If you're not getting great on participation, you lack the experience and you lack the gaining of, you know, truly being involved in the class and taking something from it. And the other thing you lose if people don't participate is that you lose that important data point, which is the moment when I can do informal assessments to see if someone is understanding something or maybe understanding partially or maybe not understanding at all, that participation helps me make that assessment. Otherwise, I can't read people's minds, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing with assessment is that it has to be something that's observable and measured. It doesn't always have to be graded like the quiz that you took. Um, I was okay with that being ungraded. I'm okay with that too. <laughs> I mean, I have a problem with quizzes and tests and over-relying on them because I think they have, they can't have questionable validity and that doesn't mean I won't use it, but I don't necessarily have to put a weight on it. I think you find a good balance to meet your philosophies. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> You're doing you, all right. You, Brianna, I think you had another question on assessment. Um, so on page 182, they give the example of Mrs. Um, Metricos, I don't know, I hope I'm saying that right, who focused solely on the correctness of an answer, uh, ignoring the process. So I guess, do you think um, that correctness is, or correctness is an in indicative um, of understanding? I'm going to say absolutely not, because that falls into what we did a few weeks ago about learning and understanding. Like, you can just remember the correct answer, but that doesn't mean you're an expert learner. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean you understand. Right, I agree with that. You know. And I think often, especially with math, like, there are times, like, there are a lot of times in, when we were in undergrad that, like, we, like, us math majors would do, like, we couldn't do, like, simple ar arithmetic. Like, we couldn't add, like, two plus three because we were so focused on, like, the process of whatever other complicated math we were doing that, like, we would end up getting the wrong answer because we added wrong or something. So that was always, like, a big joke. So I feel like definitely correctness is not a good indicator of understanding because like we did understand, but like we would just like mess up simple things, especially with math. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. it's even in science, like, you know, most people in science are guilty of being awful spellers as well. And they can write total thesis right. on like amazing complex things, but there'll be so many spelling errors. Right. I'm included in that. <laughs> but they're conveying understanding. I really like the two questions that the authors ask on page 184. And I'm going to ask you the same questions. So that's what I'm going to ask when I look at your assessment, which is that can a student do well on a performance task but not really demonstrate the understanding? And can a student do poorly on the task but still have an understanding of the ideas? So this goes to the question about validity and reliability to make sure that the assessment is setting out to measure what you need it to measure. And if students can randomly guess and get it correct, or if they can answer incorrectly but still know the concepts, then that 
assessment is not well constructed. Mm-hmm. Or they may have just seen someone else's paper. It goes back to when I was subbing the AP class on Friday. They're doing the civil rights. They're 11th grade. So I'm like, oh, and they say they do so good on their test. So I, I make them do some thinking, like some, if they were in the civil rights movements, you know, what, how would they feel? What are some things they would see? Like kind of having them come outside of that. And th- they couldn't even do that. They couldn't even really give me an answer. They could just give me facts, what happened on this date. They couldn't like be flexible and show the empathy part. They couldn't apply it anywhere else than just factual information. Yeah, I'm just asking them to synthesize something. Like, imagine you're in the civil rights era, because that's what they said their unit was. They're just giving me information that happened and people. I'm like, no, you guys. What if you were suffering from discrimination? How would you handle it? How would you feel? Would you be bold enough to be like Rosa Parks? And they're, you know, they're just giving me facts and not answering. And I even said, I gave them, I'm like, be creative. They're like... Is that the answer? I'm like, no, I'm telling you to be creative. They're good kids, though. This is high school? Yes, 5,000 kids attend this school. I definitely think, though, understanding is more about not the correctness, but if you can, you know, apply it elsewhere, too, like Kelly was saying. You know, if you can't take the information you're learning and apply it anywhere else, then you're not really understanding it. And that's something also the difference between experts and novices as well. We were talking about, I remember. Yeah, and also the essential questions, which is... What kind of questions are you asking? Right. And, you know, those essential questions shouldn't be a yes or a no answer. They should be something that, you know, a student has to think about. But I also notice I see this a lot as I sub in AP classes. They can just answer facts. You know, they're good. They just do good on tests. If I ask them anything to think about something that's difficult. But I'm assuming even like AP tests, won't they also check for understanding in terms of not just asking for facts? Well, I did ask them about their teacher and describe his, you know, because I'm curious, especially because taking this class, I asked him, well, what, how does your teacher teach normally? He goes, well, we just take notes and he'll put up the PowerPoints. You know, that's when they told me we don't have discussions, but we like discussions. You can even inference on the, on the way the room is set up, the personality of the teacher. I'm sure he's a great teacher. I'm sure he's very nice. You know, the way they set up the desk, the way that the... You know, where the desk is facing, the propaganda on the wall. You could tell inference a lot. I had a teacher in high school who was very discussion-based. Like, it was awesome. I forever will love this class. I still, it was a government class, and I still could not tell you what his political views were because, like, we would learn things, and then we would kind of have a debate about them. And everybody was pretty open about, like, what side they were on. And then he would always play devil's advocate to whatever side whoever was talking they he would always be like well what if this though and then it would make us think like okay you know that is another side to it that's something i didn't think of because you know i'm so i'm so closed-minded on one side of the situation so i think it was interesting to see how discussion-based he really was and i think that was in a way him checking for our understanding of what we learned you know he was taking the topics that we were learning and making us debate it based on our own opinions on it but also kind of like throwing in a curveball for us to really think which was awesome And the reading talked about the importance of thinking like an assessor versus thinking like an activity designer. And this was in figure 7.3 on page 151. And to make sure that as an instructional designer, you're not going for the fun activities at the expense of the learning activities. It's the activities like building a volcano or dressing up as people from a 
certain time period, I remember asking a group of social studies teachers what their most vivid memory was of their social studies classes as students. And they talked about the, you know, the Renaissance fair and dressing up and all that. And when I asked them what they learned from it, they couldn't remember, even though the memory was very clear to them. In this past week, some of your classmates have mentioned that backwards design or understanding by design is very logical. I'm not sure it's as logical to everyone, because I think there are a lot of people who might start with the activity or think that they, there's a very interesting activity or interesting program that they really want to use, and they start with that and then design the unit or lesson around it, which would be thinking more like an activity designer than an assessor as the reading recommended. And I was wondering, just as students or as teachers, do you remember instances of activities where you remember the activity but don't necessarily remember the learning gained? Well, this I made thinking how I always say, oh, you got to keep them engaged. It has to be entertaining. You know, I'm like, well, I had me really thinking, well, am I trying to be too engaging and not much? So I had a meta-reflection moment myself. No, really. And I'm like, oh, well, are they actually learning or am I just getting them interested? So that's something now I take with me when I sub and when I do other things. Like, is this actually building upon? I'm also guilty of thinking like a teacher and not so much like an assessor. So um, I have an example from when I was in middle school. This is, I still to this day don't understand it. I don't know why it was a thing. I don't know why we did it. We were the only grade to do it. It was bizarre. In middle school, um, a team, a Finland team, team from Finland, that a football team that was from, um, that was our age, came to our school for a week and like came to classes with us and everything. And it was like kind of like, there was like an emphasis on it in our school that like, you know, they were there for us and they were there, you know, to learn with us. I don't understand what the point of it was. I don't know why we did it. I remember it very vividly, though, because it was, like, a really big deal for all of us. But I have no idea what the reasoning was behind it. And, like, to this day, I don't know. And we were the only grade to do it. I just think it was so weird. So that's definitely, like, an activity or, like, a major, you know, thing that we did in the middle school that I don't know why we did it. What did they do? Like, did did you, like, did they just attend the same classes or? They would come to class with us. They would, um, the football team versus our football team. They were there with us all the time. We didn't learn anything about Finland. Like there was like, no, I don't understand the reasoning behind it at all. We learned nothing about their like culture or anything. It was really weird. I don't know what the reasoning was behind it, but that's what we did. And I actually, um, my guy, old guidance counselor from middle school, I, she came to one of my middle school extension classes and I actually asked her, I was like, what was the reasoning for that? Like, we were the only grade to do it. And she was like, I honestly don't know. <laughs> so, so weird, but I remember it very vividly and I know that like my friends do too. I mean, I wonder if it's just so that they have something to do so that they don't want to be shown around town or something. Maybe there wasn't, it was more for like a, practical reasons not for not so much for well if they had the chance to socialize that's fine as well i mean they did because they were walking around the school with us and stuff i guess it was to see like maybe it was more beneficial to them to see like the american culture but we didn't learn anything really about their culture sounds like a miss miss opportunity maybe but maybe they got something out of it they probably did we did not (laughs) maybe they're asking the same questions you remember that time we went to the u.s and (laughs) um so it was definitely something where like we were all very confused, but like we if we thought it was awesome, but we didn't learn anything from it. Okay, so I have one more question to ask. So chapter eight ends with a series of questions and guidelines. 
for constructing balance assessments. And we don't have to go through all of them, but I was wondering, what do you think? And I know two of them have to do with the facets of understanding, which is coming up next week. So if we skip number three and number eight, I was wondering what you think of those and how it applies to you. So for example, for me, having the parallel assessments would be the having the voice thread, the different performance tasks, and then having the ungraded quiz as a way for me to understand in different ways how you are doing. And so I was wondering if you have examples in your classes. I would say there's number five, try to anticipate key misunderstandings and develop quick pre-assessments and post-assessments to find out if those misunderstandings were overcome, regardless of what other assessment tests you are using. So I think that definitely something that I'm learning more about is trying to um, anticipate key misunderstandings. So that's trying to, you know, see where your students might go wrong. And a common question that I've started to ask my students is even if like the class un- understands how the, someone got an answer, I ask them, well, what, where would a common error usually be? Like, where would someone, where do you think people would usually make a mistake? And I feel like to kind of um, anticipate these misunderstandings, you also need to like know your students in the classroom and see like what they're usually misunderstanding. Um, I think that's definitely important in your classroom and then, you know, giving pre-assessments to kind of see where they're at and what their prior knowledge is and gauging your lessons on that the next day. And obviously post-assessments to see where they're at in your class after the lesson you've taught or after the um, unit you've taught. So I think that that's really useful. Well, I think that about wraps up our conversation for this week. Next week, we're going back to UDL and also talking about the six facets of understanding that this chapter has been alluding to. So we'll read up on what those six facets are. I want to thank Brianna and Kelly for being here Sorry that Kelly's response to the last question was cut off because she had some computer problems. But thank you both for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye.